She's doing some ironing in the kitchen when suddenly she felt the room go cold. And so the chill that she feels makes her look up and that is when she sees a black human-shaped form with a face that had no features. Stop. Oh, why do they never have features? Welcome back to Dark House, everyone, the podcast about America's most haunted homes. I'm Melissa Fiorentino, and this is my co-host, Hadley Mendelson. Hey, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode. If this is your first time listening, in each episode, we spotlight a different house, digging into its history and all of the creepy details that led to its eventual downfall. So today we're talking about 328-330 Chase Street in West Pittston, Pennsylvania, or better known as the Smurl House. The best way that I can think to describe it is like Amityville's little sister, if you will. Oh, Yeah, it's another famous case of demon infestation, and it was investigated by Ed and Lorraine Warren, so we'll talk a little bit more about them. But somehow it's not as well-known, at least throughout pop culture, as Amityville or even The Conjuring. And then another thing that I really liked about this story is that it takes place in the 80s, so a little more modern than some of the other houses that we've done thus far. So that felt exciting for me, at least. I hope you're excited, too. Yeah, the 80s, puffy sleeves. Also, I'm going to have to wrap my mind around not laughing at the name Smurl. It just sounds like so goofy and nice, like Smurf. That's what I was thinking. And then this morning in the shower, I was thinking about, you know, that song was like, this is the story of a girl. Uh-huh, and drown the whole world. Yeah, exactly. And then I was like, this is the story of a Smurl. <laughs> You're home alone still, right? The reason I agreed to record today was because Charles will be getting back tonight. So I will no longer be home alone. Okay. Well, we'll see. Maybe I'll still scare you. I've been like listening to consuming and watching uncharacteristically lighthearted things all week. And then the second I woke up this morning, I was like, time to watch some horror. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, you're not watching anything, but you're about to hear some ish. Good, good. So I think let's get into it. Yes. Before we begin, I want to give everyone a heads up that there is a part of the Smurl family story in which Jack Smurl describes an incident of sexual assault. I'll let you know when we're about to discuss it so you can skip ahead if hearing that part of the story might be upsetting for you. Okay, this is the story of the Smurl family. So it's Jack and Janet Smurl and their four daughters, Don, Heather, Karen, and Shannon. Karen and Shannon are twins, by the way. And then there's also Jack's parents, John and Mary Smurl. And basically what you need to know about the Smurl family is that They were described as this all-American, very down-to-earth, normal family. They were very religious. They were Catholic. But Jack and Janet were very involved in the community. They volunteered a lot. They started a bunch of different local organizations. And so they had a good reputation around town, and they were pretty well-liked. And then the other thing I wanted to tell you before we dive in is that there is a book about their story. It's called The Haunted. It was written by a local Scranton reporter, Robert Curran, and it was published by St. Martin's Press in January 1989. Wait, can I just ask, did they still live there during that time? When the book was published? No. But very shortly after they left their house, the book comes out. So it's it's a really tight turnaround that all this stuff happens. Yeah. And then... In 1991, that book was turned into a made-for-TV movie by the same name, The Haunted. So I read the book. I did not watch the movie. I just didn't want to pull away from the actual house. That's all you really need to know before we really get into things. But I'll talk more about the family and more about the book as we go on. 
Another reason why I picked the Smurl House and just something that stood out to me is that it's actually a duplex and we haven't covered a duplex yet. Hmm. Can you define really quick what a duplex is? Does it just mean there's two levels? It's like an apartment, but only two. Basically, when you look at the front of the Smurl house, there's two front doors. Mm. So rather than each floor is a home, the actual house itself is basically split down the middle in half. Ah, okay. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about what it looked like. But first, I want to tell you how they got there. Jack and Janet were living with Jack's parents, John and Mary Smurl, in John and Mary's home in Wilkes-Barre until Hurricane Agnes hit in the summer of 1972. And it flooded the entire house with 12 feet of water. Whoa. Yeah. And then in the fall of 1973, John and Mary bought the duplex on Chase Street. They bought it for $18,000 and they sold the 328 side of the house to Jack and Janet for $4,000. So Jack and Janet move in on October 1st, 1973. So they're living next door to their in-laws. Yes. Technically speaking, you would say they live next door, but it's the same structure of a home. As far as I could tell through the story, you do have to go outside to get to the other side. According to the book, The Haunted... The duplex actually had like a bit of a reputation around town, or at least in the neighborhood, before the Smurls ever moved in. And I didn't read that in any of the articles that I saw online, really just in this book. But apparently rumors had swirled for years that neighbors would hear strange sounds coming from the house, even when it was empty and unrented. Some people would say, oh, we saw indescribable things in the windows. Another person who had lived on Chase Street previously just said they always got this eerie sensation anytime they passed the house. In terms of who lived there before, all John and Mary knew when they bought the house was that an old man owned one side, but it was vacant for years, and like an old woman owned the other side, and she had rented it out, but not a lot on the history of who lived there. But the history of the town might tell us a little bit more. West Pitson is in Pennsylvania's Luzerne County, and the entire area is situated on top of these anthracite coal mines. So they were really profitable back in the 1800s and early 1900s. But by the time the Smurls move in, the coal mining industry is no more. Why did that scare me so much? I don't know. Are you having <laughs> type of feelings about the... I mean... I don't know. I was like... <gasps> is it the conversation around climate change just choking you up over this coal? Yeah, maybe. Uh-huh. So the coal mining industry was long gone. And that's partly because we replaced coal as an energy source, but also partly because of flooding. So now I said that their house had flooded with 12 feet of water, but get this. In 1959, the Susquehanna River broke through the roof of one of the mines and all of these mines are interconnected. So that flooded all of the mines with like billions of gallons of water. And that was basically the end of that. In addition to ruining whatever was left of the coal mining industry at that point, the flooding of the mines caused them to start caving in. And in The Haunted, Curran wrote that a prelate who studied the occult speculated that the mine cave-ins had caused demons to rise up from below the earth. This sounds like a TV show that was very popular on Netflix about this demon that lived in the town coal mine or like an abandoned cave. But it reminds me of this premise. Yeah. So, I mean, I read that and I was like, okay, that's a bit of a stretch. But get this. While I was researching West Pittston, I did find this horrifying anecdote that the flooding from Hurricane Agnes, this is gross. I'm just going to read it to you. And it's from the Luzerne County Wikipedia page, but I'm I'm reading it anyways. Okay. (laughs) It says, at the historic cemetery in Forty Fort, 2,000 caskets were washed away, leaving body parts on porches, roofs, and in basements. What the hell? Isn't that gross? Ooh. 
Yeah, so that Hurricane Agnes was a real monster. It's a very alarming visual to think about, but regardless, there was corruption throughout the coal mining industry. Obviously, very few people were becoming multimillionaires through it, but the workers themselves were in terrible conditions and the coal mining work was really dangerous. Yeah. So there was a lot of unrest there. And then years and years before that, present day West Pitson had been a Patriot stockade during the Revolutionary War. So I would just say there's a fair chance that the land has just, you know, got some type of energy. As for the house itself, Apparently it was the first house built on Chase Street, which means it's the oldest house on the street. But when you're looking at it, there's nothing really that makes you think, oh, this place is haunted. The weirdest thing that I thought when I was looking at it was the top half of the house has like brown siding and the bottom half had white. Basically it was color blocking going on from the exterior. Other than that, it's just a regular house. So you look at the front of the house, there's this front porch that connects it. On either end of the porch is just like a short concrete stairwell. So there's stairs on each side. Okay. Those lead up to the two front doors on either end of the house. And then I guess, you know, in the back, there's also the back porch. When you think of the inside of these homes, they're narrow because it's cutting the entire house down the middle. So just keep that in mind. There's not much of a yard. There's a little bit of a front yard, not much of a side yard, and that their property is separated from the others by like a silver chain link fence. Sounds like industrial. But it's still very neighborhood and very 70s, 80s when you're thinking of the look. Mm -hmm. The front door, when you walk in, it's the living room. All of the furniture is covered in floral fabric, but not upholstered. It's literally like a piece of floral fabric draped over it yeah exactly all of the walls are like vertical wood paneling every floor is carpeted wow yeah and then in terms of the layout of the house both sides are the same there's a living room and a kitchen on the first floor second floor is three bedrooms and a bathroom and then both sides have an attic and a concrete cellar oh god that's where none of the good stuff happens yeah you bet i'm not going there (laughs) when they moved in the Smurls started renovating both sides of the house pretty much immediately, and that is essentially when they noticed things starting to happen. The early incidents seem more annoying than actually scary. Here's a couple examples of just stuff that was happening while they were renovating that they were like, huh, that's weird. So. In January 1974, Mary Smurl, that's grandma, Mm -hmm. she bought a new carpet. And when the people from the carpet company come and they roll out her brand new carpet, she finds this huge grease stain in the middle. And so she scrubs it and actually gets it out. But then two days later, she comes downstairs and she sees the stains back. So they just go through this cycle where they keep cleaning it. They get it out. But then it comes back a couple of days later until finally they had to throw the rug away and get a new one. Don't you think that's crazy? I'd be pissed. What a waste of money. I want to Google the science behind, I don't know, maybe there's some reaction with the pH level with grease and soap or something. I don't know. I'd be freaking out. So John Smurl, that's the grandpa. Mm -hmm. He had soldered 30 joints to a copper pipe together. But every time they turned the water on, it would leak through the pipe. And this happened a lot. Yeah. Like he would have to keep redoing it. There's one pipe that he and Jack both worked on. They redid it five times until it finally worked. Wait, okay. But at that point, I would, even if you're handy around the house, I would say it's time to call on a professional. But it was everything like this. And there were a lot of little jobs that they said should take 10 minutes and it would turn into like 10 hours. And then there were always plumbing problems. There were always electrical problems. This last one I'm going to tell you pissed me off. Like it's not even my house and I'm getting mad. <laughs> Janet and Jack remodeled their bathroom and they put in a new porcelain sink and tub. 
And one morning they woke up and both the sink and tub had claw marks. What the fuck? It said scratched beyond repair. They said it looked as if talons of a some frenzied beast had clawed at the porcelain. That to me was really annoying because I think when you think about renovating and you put a lot of work into it and you're buying these new, what is the word for them? Big ticket items that are built into the home. Big ticket items. Yeah, that sucks. There was a lot of instances of things spontaneously combusting. Their TV set catching on fire. That's so dangerous. Yeah, and a brand new electric stove. They moved in in 1973. A couple of years later, it's like 1977. They are aware that the house is quote unquote spooked. But because they're so religious, they kind of find it amusing and they just continuously brush it off and they just laugh about things until it started getting creepier. A couple examples of things that started to happen that made them think, hmm, maybe this isn't so funny anymore. Dawn, the oldest daughter, would run into her parents' room at night screaming that she'd seen people floating around her room. Wait, how old was she? I'm not sure how old she was when this was happening, but by the time their story became national news, she was in high school. Okay, able to express herself in a mature way to distinguish between make-believe and reality. Yeah, definitely. So then another one, early one morning, Jack and Janet had heard the lawn chairs on the front porch sort of creaking as if people were like rocking in them. And after hearing it a couple of times, they finally went downstairs to check it out and they found the chairs empty but moving as if invisible inhabitants were sitting in them. Which that's outside, you might say, oh, the wind, but I don't know. One night while they were in bed, Jack felt someone caress his shoulder and he assumed it was Janet, you know, being romantic. But when he turned to look at her, she was asleep. What the fuck? That one's scary. I know. You're alone and you're not alone, right? Like, you know, when you're in the room with somebody, but they're asleep and you're not. Oh, I hate that feeling. It's the loneliest feeling in the world. I know. It's weird. There's two things that persist through the entire hauntings. One is the smell. They described it in different ways throughout the story because I think it changed, give or take the situation. They described it the first time as a sour but inexplicable odor. Other times they would say like a meat factory. Ew. Nasty. It was a gross smell all the time. But it would follow them. It would be in the car. It would follow Jack all the way to his office. But not in a way that it's like only Jack is smelling the smell and it's in his head. Other people were smelling it, like his secretary. The other thing that was really persistent throughout the years of them dealing with this was intense banging in the walls. They said it could vary from one rap to other times, such intense pounding that it sounded like an earthquake. And then I really liked this quote from Mary Smurl, that's Jack's mom, talking about how it affected them. She said, when somebody talks about knocking in the wall in print, it may not look that threatening. But believe me, when you're sitting in your living room and all of a sudden something begins banging inside your wall, your whole system responds. She'd read this article about stress and the way it affects your body. And she said that all of us were getting colds and flus and headaches and you certainly didn't have to wonder why. So she was talking about how you're reading this book and it's repeating over and over again, the banging the walls, the banging the walls. And it's so true that like, as I was reading it, I was like, okay, that sounds terribly annoying, but I'm not feeling the intensity. And it would always be late at night. They wouldn't be getting any sleep. Like I said, it's both sides of the house. And John and Mary, they're older. They're trying to enjoy their retirement years. I can't imagine how stressful and annoying this was for them. It's funny though, because Charles and I have, whenever we turn on the heat or someone above us does, it makes a weird noise. We call it the man in the wall. (laughs) I know. And now I'm like, that's going to have a new... I'm surprised you let that fly. 
Well, I was, it was ha ha, the man in the world every night. Good night. However, now I might not love that joke. Yeah. I, I don't, I would let that one go. <laughs> I think it's worth pointing out that the Smurls didn't jump right to the conclusion of paranormal activity. They actually spent a lot of time looking for a reasonable explanation. So for example, Janet called the Department of Mines to see if the mines sinking and caving in could be causing any of this stuff or even the smell. And the Department of Mines told her to check their foundation for evidence of cracks and crumbling. And they did, but there was no evidence found. She also called the light company to see why their lights would be, you know, turning off and on. And a contractor from the light company came. He checked everything and he said the house was rewired only a few years ago and they have plenty of circuits. So there's no reason he could find that the lights should be turning off and on. So she she was doing quite a bit of legwork to look for a real scientific or practical explanation. Or also to just call professionals to fix some of the more physical issues. Right. To no avail. It wasn't them. Yeah. So then I would say the turning point for when things went from amusing or annoying to downright terrifying was February 1985. So again, a bit of a time jump. Here's what happened. So one day while Jack was at work and all four of the daughters were at school, Janet was home alone and she's doing some ironing in the kitchen when suddenly she felt the room go cold. And so the chill that she feels makes her look up and that is when she sees... I just got them. The chills? Yeah. Just wait. Uh. That's when she sees a black human-shaped form with a face that had no features. Stop. Oh, why do they never have features? She thought maybe she was hallucinating, but then it started moving towards her. And the closer it got, the more clearly she could see it. She said maybe it was about 5'9", and it appeared to be made of thick, dark, rolling smoke, so she could see actually right through it. It didn't walk, it glided, and it glided past her into the living room. So she stands like frozen, paralyzed. She's in the kitchen for about like another minute, and then finally she sort of unfreezes and she follows it into the living room, which was empty, of course. Then she works up the courage to go tell her mother-in-law what she'd seen. And when she gets over there, Mary Smurl is sitting in her rocking chair and she's acting a bit strange. Uh before Janet could even tell her, Mary goes, maybe you won't even believe me, Janet. I don't know if I believe me. Maybe I'm getting old. There's this thing, this black thing. I don't know what else to call it. It came through the wall. What the fuck? It went through the living room of Jack and Janet's home into basically the staircase of John and Mary Smurls. So just passed through the wall of the duplex. So how did they resolve that? Were they just like, let me pull up a chair and we can change the subject here? Or like, what did they do? This is the beginning, right? It's crazy to say that because clearly I just told you a backlog of other annoying and weird things happening for years from the day they move in to now 1985 when they physically see something. And to answer your question, there's a journey. The rest of the story is what are they doing to to fix this? And it's so exhausting. We're going to need a nap after this. But I think Janet felt scared to tell Mary because she was like, my mother-in-law is going to think I'm insane. But then she gets over there and she's like, oh my God, she just had the exact same experience. So I think in a way it's validating. But in another way, that was the moment too when she started to feel uncomfortable in her own home. It's definitely the shift where things get, I don't want to say danger. Well, I guess dangerous because 
from that point on, it starts being physical. Things were happening every single day, whether it was something very small to something super intense. There's tons of examples if you go read the book, but a couple of the more like noteworthy, at least to me, physical incidents are these. On the afternoon of Heather's Catholic confirmation, a heavy light fixture in the kitchen fell from the ceiling and struck Shannon, one of the younger daughters, in the shoulder. And if she had been standing two inches closer to it, it could have killed her. And again, the guy from the light company came. Everything was solid, but this light just comes right down. And I think it's noteworthy that it was the day of the confirmation, a religious sacrament. This is sad. At one point, the family dog, Simon, he was a German shepherd, he was, quote, lifted from the floor by invisible hands and smashed against the kitchen door. Oh my God. Yeah. He got attacked a lot, but... What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> One night after they tucked their kids into bed, Jack and Janet themselves were... They went to bed, but then they awoke to the sound of a large thud as if something had landed at the bottom of the stairs. And they went out to look and they found one of the twins. Twins are so menacing in every haunted movie. <laughs> well, one of the twins was at the bottom of the stairs, crumpled in a ball and crying. She didn't remember how she even got there. They believed that she was thrown down the stairs by the entity. Just a heads up, the next incident I'm going to tell you about involves a sexual assault. If you'd like to skip this part of the story, go ahead and fast forward two minutes now. One night, Jack woke up and he saw a female entity in the corner of the room. And this is how she was described in the book. Her skin was paper white, but it was covered in some places with a scaly surface and then in other places with open sores. Jack said she looked to be about 65 to 70 years old with long white scraggly hair and red eyes and the inside of her mouth and her gums were green. Some of her teeth were missing, but those that she had were very long and vampire-like. Her body itself was firm, like that of a younger woman. He said he felt paralyzed as he watched her walking towards the bed. And then he says that she mounted him in the dominant position and started riding. Have you seen Midsommar? No, I've heard a little bit about it. Okay. I don't want to give any spoilers, but it definitely sounds like a lot of imagery around the old witch who is a sexual deviant and stealing the youth of the young women and children. Anyway, keep going though. I want to hear more. So he said it wasn't pleasurable and that he didn't remember feeling anything at all other than panic and complete terror. Oh my God. And afterward, the entity just like vanished into thin air and Jack felt a sticky substance all over himself. What the fuck? He said the substance had a very pungent odor and that he himself felt extremely sore as if he had had prolonged sex. Oh. Yeah. And apparently this type of entity is known as a succubus. So a female demon that has sex with men while they're sleeping. And the male counterpart is known as an incubus. I mean, I just find it crazy that there's like sexual assault. Ugh, I'm really freaked out by that. It's a very serious claim. You don't hear that a lot when you hear about poltergeist or demon possession. No, I mean, that sounds like a trauma response to a really horrible experience. Yeah, definitely. At this point, they're still hoping for a reasonable explanation, but they begin to consider the possibility that the source of their problems is an otherworldly entity. And being devout Catholics, they turned to the church for help. Janet reached out to the local Scranton Diocese several times, and they were consistently unhelpful. And they told her that they didn't perform exorcisms and they don't even teach them anymore. 
So having been turned away from the church, they start to feel helpless and unsure of where else to turn. Because remember, this is the 80s. There's no internet. They were just like, what else are we supposed to do here? We've called the Department of Mines. We've called the Light Company. We called the church. We don't have answers. So about around January 1986, they learn of a couple who studied demonic infestation. So that's Ed and Lorraine Warren. Now, the Warrens were a husband and wife team from Connecticut, and they are easily the best demonologists of the time. Ed was the director of the New England Society for Psychic Research, and Lorraine herself was a psychic. And the Warrens agreed to visit the Smurl House and assess the situation. And shortly into their visit, they agreed to work the case pro bono. Now, what stood out most to the Warrens when they got there was that the Smurl family was incredibly normal. And they said that in most other haunting cases that they've worked on, there it was a classic pattern of like troubled home life or what they called great domestic anxiety. Wow. But that they knew immediately that the Smurls did not fit the pattern. During the first visit to the Smurl house, the Warrens told the Smurls that they found four spirits in the house. The first spirit was an elderly woman who they said was not violent, probably just confused. Another psychic named Betty Ann later told the Smurls that this spirit's name was Abigail. That was the name of my imaginary friend slash ghost friend. No, that stresses me out. Don't tell me things like that. <laughs> Lorraine felt that there was another much younger female spirit who she said was insane and violent. Ooh. And she said that that spirit could harm the Smurls, but that most likely she could be dealt with through prayer. The third spirit was a man with a mustache who had the ability to, quote, carry out great harm. So Betty Ann, she was able to give more detail about this man with the mustache. She said that his name was Patrick and that he was alive sometime in the 19th century and that Patrick was abusive to his wife, Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth grew scared of Patrick, she became involved with another man. Mm -hmm. And one day, Patrick found Elizabeth with her lover, and he killed them both in a fit of rage. Ugh. Patrick was eventually hung for the murders. And so according to Betty Ann, Janet looked like Elizabeth, and Patrick thought Jack was the lover, so he wanted them separated. She also said that Patrick did not want to leave the house, and he would be, it would be very difficult to get rid of him. Was this corroborated by any empirical findings? Could they find any paperwork or documents about this man being alive and existing? I didn't read anything about anyone digging into that history. Hmm. He didn't live in the Smurl house. It was just nearby. Yeah. The fourth spirit, which they found in Jack and Janet's bedroom closet, was a demon. When describing the demon, they said, it never stands erect. It always hunches over and it can appear out of nowhere. It's me. <laughs> it can disappear into a closet or wall or anywhere it wants to go. It can also bring very powerful telepathic hypnosis to bear on any human mind. Those are the four spirits in the house. The Warrens warned the Smurls that the demon would try to use the three human spirits against them, which I feel like we've heard that before. Mm -hmm. And that it would also play the family members against each other. So for example, if Karen's shirt goes missing and then she's accusing Shannon of taking it and then they get in a fight when in actuality it was the demon who moved the item. It reminded me of creepy crawls in a way, sort of. Mm -hmm. It gets brought up that sometimes they would hear pig grunts. And apparently pigs are symbolic of a harsh demonic presence. Pigs, piggy, manson. I'm still down the hole. 
I was going to say it reminded me of my sister, the sweater mishap part. (laughs) Yeah. It's another one of those things very easily. You guys could just be having an argument. Wasn't caused by the demon, but they talked a lot about how the demon would target each family member individually, specifically because if I'm the only one who sees it one day, I'll think I'm crazy. If two people see it and they can corroborate each other's story, that's kind of different. So it's using a lot of different tactics to divide the family and to purposely drain them of their energy. Ed said, you're always tired and that's one of the reasons you're always cold. And I read that and I was like, I'm always tired and I'm always cold. Mm-hmm. Like, do I have a demon? You have mono. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. It's basically mayhem. So the Warrens tell them it's also going to be able to present itself in multiple different forms. So here are a couple of the ways that it chose to present itself. Once when Jack was watching TV, he saw a young man with long blonde hair and an unpleasant smile watching him from across the room. He like got up from his chair to approach and the young man vanished. On another occasion, Janet was getting into the shower and she saw a bright human-shaped form standing in the corner of the shower. She said it was like five feet tall. It had shoulders and a head, but no neck, legs, or arms. Its glow was so bright that it hurt her eyes, as if staring directly into the sun. <laughs> Once, Mary Smurl saw a puppy with no head and no tail run across the room and, like, dart underneath their sofa. What does that look like? I couldn't even picture that. And then on several occasions, Jack and Janet would see this beast-like creature. Jack described it as appearing to be eight feet tall, so huge, but standing on two legs and that it had a furry head with red eyes and a pig-like snout. Uh. And I think Janet added that it had two horns coming out of its head. So it takes all these different forms. It's showing up in everybody's bedrooms in the middle of the night, banging on the walls constantly. Like I said, the church was not going to help, but Ed and Lorraine Warren found a priest, Father McKenna of Monroe, Connecticut, to perform an exorcism for the Smurl family. He actually did three exorcisms at 328, 330 Chase Street, And none of them were successful. Each time, things would seem to calm down for a couple of days, but then eventually the demon would return. After the first two failed exorcisms, the Smurls were getting extra, extra desperate. And they thought about moving, but the Warrens reminded them that there's just no guarantee that the demon wouldn't follow them to their new home. Attach itself on the back of the neck. Right, on the back of the neck. And so, as a test, the entire Smurl family, so John and Mary included, went on a week-long camping trip. And the idea was, okay, if we all leave the house and the demon doesn't follow us, it leaves us alone, then maybe it's attached to the house and moving would be a solution. But unfortunately, it did follow them to the campground. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I won't get into like the details of what happened there. Let's say... People who have the outlook that this is usually related to some sort of mental illness, even if it weren't to begin with, I mean, I'm certainly would develop some serious... They were exhausted. Sleep, you would be sleep deprived. Like, who knows what would happen to your mental health? (laughs) They don't know what to do. It smells. It's always banging in the walls. They've got multiple exorcisms under their belt and it's not working. After the camping trip, they decide there's one option left and that's to go public with their story and they had considered the option for a while up to that point but they kept putting it off because they knew a it's going to be so much unwanted attention and b 
people will think they're crazy. They tried to tell the story anonymously. Jack and Janet joined and Lorraine for an appearance on a local Philadelphia talk show called People Are Talking. And Jack and Janet were speaking from behind a screen and their voices were concealed. Mm. They didn't reveal their names or their address. But this didn't really do much to help their cause because, again, they didn't come right out and say who they are. I know. It's weird because in journalism, too, if you have an anonymous source, people just tend not to take it as seriously. Yeah. I guess I kind of understand. Like, you need a face to be able to trust the voice. Mm -hmm. So some of the kids were school-aged. I wonder what teachers were thinking if there were any physical evidence of, like, the child who fell down the stairs, for example. Did they ever go to Child Protective Services? At this point, the neighbors and pretty much the entire town was aware. And most people were supportive. Karen Smurl says that everybody who knew them personally, whether it's through church, school, family, friend, if not believed them, supported and wanted to help. It would be people who didn't actually know them personally who might think they're kooky or whatever, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but didn't seem like anybody was kind of raising an eyebrow and being like, whoa, 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 what else is going on here? Yeah. So after one more failed attempt to get in touch with the diocese, the Smurls contacted Sandy Underwood, a staff writer for the Wilkes-Barre Sunday Independent newspaper, and their story ran on Sunday, August 17th, 1986. Almost immediately after the stories published, cars began appearing outside the Smurls' home, and people were literally camping out outside of their house just to look at it. And people would climb trees to be able to look down onto the porch, and just overnight, the Smurls became prisoners in their own home. Yeah. The crowds got so intense that the police had to barricade the street but that didn't do much because then people from literally across the country would just park their car wherever they wanted to in West Pittston and walk to Chase Street and then just stand there all over the sidewalk in neighbors yards just staring at this house that's crazy yeah crazy and it got kind of dangerous for the Smurls there were two incidents in particular that really freaked them out I guess one morning a man with a handgun drove by the house really slowly what the hell And then another guy got right up to the front door holding a big machete, but other people in the crowd were yelling at him, so he ran off. In addition to the crowds, the Smurls were also being hounded by the press, like hundreds of calls per day. The reporters were wanting to talk to them or see inside the house. The frenzy outside their house and the media attention, it went on for months. And by the time things really quieted down, Jack had lost 20 pounds, Janet had lost 14 pounds and developed an ulcer. Oh my God. It was so bad for them. And worse, it didn't really do anything. Like they did get hundreds of supportive letters from people all over the world sharing similar experiences. But what did they think that would accomplish, honestly, going public? I mean, other than getting paid some money for your appearances so that you can eventually have enough money to move out. And they didn't get paid. Okay, then what did they think that would help? They were looking for somebody to be like, we had this happen and this is how we fixed it. So the letters would come in and it did make them feel less isolated, Mm -hmm. but nobody offered any type of solution. So they kind of got nothing out of it. And then, of course, as to be expected, not everyone was nice or supportive. So a guy named Stephen Kaplan, who was the director of the Parapsychology Institute of America at the time, came right out and said, this case is a hoax. This other guy, Paul Kurtz, he was a philosophy professor at the State University of New York at Buffalo, and he was the chairman of the committee for the scientific investigation of claims of the paranormal. Mouthful. He spoke up against the Smurl case and the Warrens. He said, there's no explanation for the Smurl house, but I wouldn't simply assume it is a haunting. It seems to us that a great to-do has been made about it, and we wonder if it's like the Amityville horror hoax, which was based on imagination rather than 
actual haunting. Wow. He also questioned whether or not Jack Smurl was hallucinating or suffering from what he called brain impairment. And he did actually offer a couple of doctors and scientists to go and provide psychological analysis for the Smurls, which I guess the Smurls turned down. I wonder why they were willing to accept all sorts of different perspectives earlier. I think that they were just like, we know what we saw when we know we're not crazy. Yeah, but if someone could still help you and give you some professional guidance about how to handle things like the actual stress it's causing, that to me raises a red flag that they rejected that. This part I thought was interesting. According to an article in the Times Leader, Jack Smurl told a reporter that in 1983, he had surgery to remove water from his brain. And prior to the surgery, Jack had been experiencing short-term memory loss, which he thought could have been caused by meningitis, which he had in his late 20s. Now, that's never mentioned in the book, The Haunted. But the Smurls also defended themselves in the story, referencing that several neighbors had witnessed the paranormal activity and some even experienced it in their own homes. Here's a couple instances. One weekend when the Smurls went camping, several neighbors stopped by to check on the house. I would not. I'd be like, uh-uh, you're on your own. Right. And as they're leaving, they hear this strange fluttering sound coming from the second floor. They described it like giant wings scratching the window. As if there's some huge monster bird trying to get out. And then they heard blood-curdling screams, like someone's dying. And they all booked it. There's another neighbor. Her name is Shelly Adams. She's probably like Dawn's age or maybe a little bit older, but her parents were very close with Jack and Janet. So one afternoon after Janet had stopped by to talk with Shelly's mom, her parents leave. And so Shelly's home alone and she's doing the dishes and she's listening to music. All of a sudden, the stereo starts blasting full volume. And when she turns it down, she turns around and sees the front door was open like two or three inches, but it had been locked shut. And when she went to go close it, the lock was still latched. What the hell? Mm -hmm. That's interesting to me, though, because it's like, okay, so even despite all of these hauntings, they were able to have a normal social life and develop friendships with the neighborhood. So maybe their, their life wasn't always dominated by this. No, yeah. Karen said that this did not ruin their childhood by any means. They were very well liked in school. All of the girls were good at like sports and things like that. Hmm. When you're reading about it and it's a daily thing... It feels very intense and we feel like we're in a, like, a, I would say like a vacuum of it. And you're talking to the story. Yeah. Like I feel trapped. Yeah. I mean, the girls were at school all day. Okay. Janet's the one who's dealing with the most because she's at the house all day, but we'll come back to that. This is the scariest neighbor story. So it's a different weekend that they're camping. And this one neighbor doesn't know they're gone, calls up looking for Janet. She said a little girl with a creepy laugh picked up the phone and told her they don't live here anymore. Uh. She said she called six or seven times that weekend and every single time the little girl answered. She called the operator to like verify and the operator was like, yes, you are calling the Smurl house. What the hell? Isn't that crazy? And there's more. Those are just a couple ones that I thought were worth telling to you right now. But there's other neighbors they have the bangings or they smell the smell. And also in the interview with Karen that I was listening to, she said that her older sisters would go to sleepovers and the parents would get a call in the middle of the night and be like, shit's happening. You have to come get her. <laughs> so it sounds very much like a problem of it stuck to the family somehow. Yeah, that's why they call it the haunted possessive. I mean, honestly, going camping that frequently is enough to ruin my childhood. <laughs> I hate camping. But I can't believe that these kids were able to function properly. They're a resilient bunch, the Smurls. They really are. It's kind of crazy. Okay, in terms of who believed them and who didn't. Yeah. Interestingly enough, the church 
they come out and they say they do believe them, mm. but they don't know what the cause of the odd occurrences are. But they were really mad that the Smurls went public because then the church was getting tons of calls from reporters. So they end up telling the Smurls that they're taking over the case officially and they don't want the Warrens involved anymore, blah, blah, blah. But unsurprisingly, they were really slow to help. And when they did eventually send a couple of priests out to investigate, of course, the demon just like doesn't act up. Mm. Meanwhile, the Warrens start getting really freaked out and worried that the demon might try to possess Jack. So they arranged for Father McKenna to do the third exorcism. And after this one, they planned for friends and family to come to the Smurl house and join them to drown the demon in prayer, which this time it seemed to have worked. As the exorcism was happening, they said they noticed the smell of roses throughout the house. And weeks passed by without a single incident to the point where the Smurls made a public statement to the press on October 28th, 1986, saying, For several weeks now, all has been quiet in our house and it would appear that our problem has been resolved. But sadly, it didn't last long. Two weeks before Christmas, Jack saw the demon again in the mirror in the living room and he wasn't going to tell his family. But then that night, the banging in the walls started again. I wonder if somehow he conjured it back up. I don't know. I, I just don't think any of the exorcisms actually worked. Yeah, I have a lot of questions. Maybe they got stronger and stronger, but he's like, I'm back. It doesn't matter. Where does that bring them today? The Smurls did eventually move from Chase Street the following December. All of the Smurls? All the Smurls. Karen Smurl, who today works as a paranormal investigator herself, confirmed in an interview that they continued to experience the demon infestation even in the new home. And that Ed and Lorraine Warren continued to work their case until she was about 13 years old. Father McKenna actually performed at least two more exorcisms at the new house. And after each exorcism, the demon got noticeably weaker, but never fully left. Over time, as the incidents got farther and fewer between, they kind of just had to grow to accept it because there's no other answers for them at this point. And she said that her family still has paranormal experiences every so often. She said... Human spirits you can get rid of, but a demonic haunting, even though it's gone, it's never really gone. It leaves a stain. The grease. The grease stain, yes. As for the house, after the Smurls moved out, it was, I guess, only haunted by its reputation. So a man named Richard Bridal, he purchased 328, 330 Chase Street from the Smurls in December 1987, and he complained that the stigma around the home was making it difficult for him to rent it out. Mm -hmm. But he said, I think it's a bunch of nonsense and it's just ridiculous. Coming back to Karen, she said that for years she's been hearing from people who have lived at the house since and not one person has reported paranormal activity. Okay. However, there have been two deaths at the house since the Smurls moved out. One of the deaths was an apparent drug overdose. Wow. And the second one was a fatal fall inside the home, but they don't really know the specific details of how the person fell. Wow. That is really interesting. I know. It's confusing because they say there was a reputation about the duplex before they get there, but then it almost seems like the spirit is particularly latching on to the family. Well, that's why I want to know more about Jack. Why would it pick him? Why is he a good host? Well, there's the thing about how Patrick maybe thought Jack was the lover, but I also believe Jack said that when he was a little boy, he one time woke up in the middle of the night and saw a pair of eyes staring back at him. What the fuck? So I don't know if maybe this thing has been with him 
for a really long time and it's him that it's actually attached to. But he also said that it only happened that one time and then never again until he was an adult and he moved to Chase Street. So I don't know. Wow. Janet was a stay-at-home mom, so they only had the one source of income. So when things would happen during the day and Janet would be freaked out, Jack couldn't be taking off in the middle of the day all the time. So instead, she would end up calling the school and Dawn, the oldest daughter, would have to come home, which is really interesting. Not that I disagree and would say that their one source of income wasn't important to maintain, but it's also like her education is being disrupted. That's what I was about to say. Mm. I don't know. That seems unfair. There's no good choice, right? And it's also interesting of the way they move in and they start doing all this work and the house is just butting heads with them and isn't accepting any of the projects that they're doing. But they lost everything in the flood and their young new parents and they couldn't afford to just up and move. Yeah. In addition to John and Mary living in the other side of the duplex, I guess Janet's mom lived on Chase Street as well. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There's really no obvious out. No. And I'd be curious to know what happened to the the rest of the siblings and what their perspectives are on it today. Karen said that they all still experience stuff, but two of the sisters, I would say, are like intuitive and see things still and have personal experiences. And the other two sisters are not. Are the twins the same? I don't think so. I think Karen is and Shannon isn't. But she said that all of the kids, the daughter's kids, see things. So that's interesting. It might just be that the family has some line of intuition. Yeah. That's crazy. Wow. I mean, it's really interesting to me too how like the church got involved. That was a hard thing for Janet to deal with because she grew up her whole life in the church, super religious, and then to be turning to them for help to get turned away. It didn't make her like lose her faith, but it pissed her off. Yeah. Which I think is fair. That is essentially the story of the Smurl House. I really liked it for all the reasons that it felt different. Amityville gets all the spotlight, but this is a really interesting one in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I'm fascinated by it, but definitely interesting too, to learn about a perspective of a demonic possession. Because I remember when we were interviewing Professor Talk last year, he was talking about how poltergeists and that type of folklore often happens in homes with lots of teenagers. Oh, that was the thing I forgot to tell you. Ed and Lorraine Warren pointed out that often demons show up in a home where specifically girls are going through puberty. (laughs) And I'm just like, why is it the girls? Why? Why is it always happening to us? Yeah. I mean, it kind of sounds like a stigmatization of the menstrual cycle, but maybe (laughs) homework for everybody here. You need to go to mcsweeneys.net and read We Are the Husbands from Every Haunted House movie. And we think you're just not giving our new home a chance by Amanda Lear. It is funny, but it also kind of speaks to that issue of why is it never the dude? Right? I know. Okay, well, that was great. I'm really glad that I'm not home alone anymore. It's always my goal to find one that like you haven't heard about yet. I've never heard of it. Well, good. I'm glad. Now everybody's heard of Smurl. <laughs> so thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed this story. If you did, Hadley and I would so appreciate it if you could take a minute and let us know in an Apple podcast review. We love hearing your thoughts on each episode. You can also DM us on Instagram. Our Instagram handles are our full names, or you can message us on the Dark House account, which is at Dark House Podcast. Make sure you're following it so you can keep up with updates about new episodes and see some visuals. We'll be back, so stay tuned. Thanks for listening. <laughs>